Hello everybody, Daniel Barnett here. It's the 14th of January 2020 and this is episode 28 of Employment Law Matters. In this episode, you'll learn what to include in an occupational health referral, when to make the referral and the steps to take after you've done so. First of all, a big thank you to the fabulously named Scorpion Amy, who left this review on the iTunes podcast charts. These podcasts give me such valuable information as an HR practitioner, which allows me to coherently explain matters to management. Thank you, Scorpion Amy. And if you send your real name and address to podcast at danielbarnett.co.uk, we'll send you a copy of one of my books, GDPR for HR Professionals, as a thank you for leaving that review. And now, making an occupational health referral. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. What do you include in an OH referral? When preparing your referral letter, remember the occupational health practitioner doesn't know the employee and doesn't necessarily know your organisation, your industry or your sector. Giving occupational health a decent amount of background information helps build a true picture of the employee's situation. And to get the most out of occupational health, you should ask for answers to specific questions. Tailor them to the situation in hand as well as background information on the employee, absence, work history, what they can do, what they can't do, you should ask the OH practitioner questions covering four areas. I'll tell you what they are, and then I'll deal with each in a little more detail. The employee's medical condition, disability, can they do their job, and could they do their job if adaptations were made? In a little more detail... It goes without saying that you need a thorough diagnosis of the employer's condition, you need a relevant prognosis, and you need details of the likely effects of any medication or treatment. Because remember, when assessing whether somebody qualifies as disabled, a tribunal will disregard the effect of any medication or other treatment that they're taking or undergoing. It's also important to get a view on the likelihood that the employee is disabled because that carries further risks for any potential claims you might face if you don't handle the employee's situation properly. So you should ask about the effect of the employee's condition on carrying out normal day-to-day activities. Remember, what a doctor or occupational health practitioner says to you is not binding. It's the tribunal that gets the final say on whether somebody is disabled or not. But if the occupational health practitioner has clearly indicated that there are no real impositions on the ability to carry out normal day-to-day activities, then you may have an argument that you didn't know and couldn't reasonably have been expected to know that the employee was disabled, in which case you would find you're not under a duty to make reasonable adjustments. Making reasonable adjustments, of course, is vital if there's a likelihood your employee is disabled, but it's also good practice to make adaptations anyway. Ask the occupational health practitioner to recommend what adjustments they think you could make. You can go even further. What duties does the OH practitioner think they should not do and for how long? Will there be any duties they should avoid while they're under medication or treatment? And you need to know whether there's any prospect of your employee returning to work soon or indeed at all. 
although very few Oc Health practitioners will say we don't think they're ever likely to return to work. Most occupational health practitioners will bat things out into the long grass and say, let's review in three months, let's review in six months, let's review in another six months. But ask, is the employee fit for work now or in the foreseeable future? And if so, when? The more specific the questions are, the more helpful the answers will be, both for you and for the employee, moving forward with their role. If you find you get a wet, hapless, anodyne occupational health report, find yourself another occupational health advisor. There are good ones out there. When should you make an occupational health referral? The simple answer is the earlier, the better. Early referrals tend to lead to successful outcomes, i.e. the employee returning to work more quickly and with greater stability. The longer you leave it, the greater chance they'll be off work for longer or maybe not even return at all. Health problems can escalate. And by tackling the problem sooner rather than later, you could find it costs you less to resolve, if for no other reason than you're not paying them sick pay for as long a period. If you become concerned that an employee is behaving differently or is missing work, whether sporadically or for large chunks of time, think about making an occupational health referral. There may be all sorts of non-medical explanations, so you need to get to the bottom of the explanations as well. And it's helpful if you and the employee look at an occupational health referral as being in both of your interests. It's impartial, it's independent, even though you're usually the one paying for it, and no one's got anything to lose by going to an occupational health practitioner, although the employee won't necessarily see it that way. Some employees are going to be suspicious. Some employees are going to be reluctant to cooperate, often because they don't trust your motives. And if that's the case, you need to manage the situation. Explain why you think that getting an occupational health report will help you and help them. And explain that its purpose is to help them get back to work, either fully fit or with some ailments that you can adapt around. Of course, the Oc Health report only does its job if you get the terms of the referral spot on, because occupational health practitioners can only go on the information they're given. And if you don't give them the information, you can rest assured the employee will give them their version of the situation and the occupational health practitioner will have no reason to do anything other than take that at face value. At least if the employee is going to give a different version of events, make sure the occupational health practitioner knows your version also. And this is usually done in the referral letter you send. It's quite dangerous to have follow-up conversations with occupational health on the phone because things can turn a little murky and if a case ever gets to the employment tribunal, an employment judge won't like the fact that you've been having off-the-record conversations with the occupational health professional. It's important to be open with the employee about the scope of the referral. Sometimes there's confusion about what occupational health is about, and employees can be unwilling to reveal too much because they fear their job may be at risk. So remind them or tell them that the practitioner is independent. And while all of this is underpinned by a legal duty, and that quite rightly is in your mind, that legal duty is designed to protect the employee. So tell them that. Now, one of the big issues is consent. 
We know the employee's consent is needed where occupational health is concerned. Anything medical is sensitive personal information. Some employment contracts have clauses in them that say you agree to consent. And they're certainly worth having, but they're not really worth the paper they're written on because an employee can withdraw consent at any time and you'll really struggle to justify disciplinary proceedings as a result of withdrawing consent. But if you don't have that in your contract, you'll need to get them to sign a consent form. Here's what you should do if your employee is reluctant or is refusing to go to an occupational health examination. First of all, explain how important it is that you understand exactly what their condition is and exactly how you can help. And second of all, take clear contemporaneous notes of your conversations with the employee and of their refusal to cooperate. And if they still refuse, in practice, that means all you have to go on is what you already know about the employer's health. They've been off. They've been off a long time. You have no reason to think they're coming back anytime soon. Now, that might not be the whole story, but that's all you've got. And a tribunal will say you're acting reasonably in dismissing on grounds of ill health or absence based on that information if they're not giving you or letting you have any more information. And we all know that one of the main factors in justifying the fairness of a dismissal is the prospect of the employee returning to work in the foreseeable future. If they won't allow you to get medical evidence on this, bluntly, in reality, it will count against them. If an employee does give their consent, then they're entitled to be as involved in the process as you are. They're entitled to see their referral file, so bear that in mind when taking notes or writing your instruction letter to the occupational health practitioner. It's important not to say anything in the OCH health instruction letter that you wouldn't want either the employee or in a worst case scenario, a court or a tribunal seeing. And the employee is also entitled to see a copy of the report. They're entitled to read what's said about them. They can insist on the occupational health practitioner sending them a copy before they send it to you and they can withdraw their consent when they've seen the report but before you've seen it. They're also entitled to write to the occupational health practitioner and say sorry you've got those facts wrong and by facts I mean the narrative of the background of what's happened of the absence records of what the employee said during the meeting what the occupation sorry what the employee is not able to do they can try, but it won't get them very far, is challenge the occupational health practitioner's professional opinion as what to infer from those facts. In other words, they can't really challenge the diagnosis or the prognosis unless they trump the occupational health report by going and getting a consultant's report, which would generally be regarded as better. What happens next? Well, you'd expect an occupational health report to tell you about the medical condition the employee has, about its effects, about the likely prognosis and how long this will affect their inability to do the job. You'd expect it to say whether or not the employee has a disability, whether they'll need any adjustments and what should happen next. You need to follow up on any occupational health recommendations, including any recommendation for further assessment or you may fail in your duty of care to the employee. The Court of Appeal made it clear in a case called Hartman against South 
Essex Mental Health Community Care NHS Trust that an employer who fails to act can be liable in negligence. And in particular, this case highlighted that where the employer is aware that specific employees are vulnerable to stress, it's important they don't glaze over the issues. In Wealdon against HSBC Bank, the employers came under criticism for ignoring the recommendations made by Occupational Health and closing the file without holding any discussions with the employee or implementing any changes. Remember that Occupational Health is a reactive measure. It's not preventative. So you need to act promptly when you get the report and indeed, if possible, before you get the report. The key things to take away from this episode of Employment Law Matters are, number one, make referrals as early as possible. Number two, make sure the referral is clear, giving all relevant information and asking the right questions. And number three, deal with it. Implement what appears in the report. Make sure you respond in a way that ticks all the boxes as far as your legal responsibilities go. And thank you for listening to this episode 28 of Employment Law Matters. If you don't subscribe, oh my goodness, why not? It's 2020. Everyone should be subscribing to this podcast. Go out to danielbarnett.co.uk slash podcast and hit the subscribe button. You can subscribe via iTunes podcasts, via Google podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, any of the normal platforms where you download and love listening to podcasts. Thank you very much for listening. I will speak to you next Tuesday. I'm Daniel Barnett. Goodbye. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk forward slash podcast terms.